Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Dr. Nashatir Dao Solheim about her experience as an executive coach and psychologist working with psychopaths. Dr. Nashatur Dao Salheim, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. It's lovely to be joining you, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. It is a real pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time. You're joining us from Norway. Uh, I'm here in Salt Lake City in the United States. Uh, so there's a bit of time difference, um, but I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, out of your busy schedule to meet with me, to have a nice conversation with me and, and for my listeners as you share your experiences, your wisdom in relation to leadership. You're an executive leadership coach, and I'll share your bio here in just a moment. Today, we're going to be focusing on kind of the duality of your experiences as an executive leadership coach, as well as a psychologist working with psychopaths. And in the pre-interview, we were talking about that a little bit. Uh, there's certainly some nuances there that we need to um, uh and, and, and some caveats that we need to throw in there, but that'll be the general framing for the conversation. Uh, and ultimately, how do we lead effectively in that kind of a dynamic where we have high, high charging uh, executives and CEOs, um, but we also have to balance the people needs of organizations and uh, lead with, with empathy and compassion as well. Uh, as we get started, I wanted to share your bio with everybody. Dr. Nashadar Dao Salheim is CEO of Progressing Minds and author of The Leadership Pin Code, Unlocking the Key to Willing and Winning Relationships, which debuted on the 2020 Forbes list of eight books. She is an HBR contributor, executive coach on leadership influence, and a keynote speaker on her experience as a psychologist working with psychopaths. She is an accomplished moderator on the international stage. She has over 25 years of practical business experience across diverse sectors uh, for governments, global corporate uh, SMEs, and with entrepreneurs. She has held executive leadership positions within strategy and leadership development in the international corporation uh, that she's worked and in various SMEs. And she holds a doctorate in psychology from the UK and trained as an executive negotiator at Harvard Law School. It has been it's just a real pleasure to meet you, to have a chance to chat with you today. Anything else you would like to share with listeners by way of your background or personal context before we dive on into the conversation? No, I think that you, you covered it very well. Just to say, you'll hear my accent is British, uh, born and brought up in, in the UK, now living in Norway, have done for the last 15 years. So I last year, I pretty much, I would say, traveled the world from my kitchen, like many of us have during COVID time. So a global trotter, but not so much physically nowadays. 
<laughs> yeah, a gl global trotter uh, virtually, I, that's a great way to put it. I also Absolutely. love traveling and it's really been sad to have so much of that hindered over the past year and a half. And I'm really looking forward to, to having the chance to get back out and, and visit so many great, interesting places and to make these types of interesting connections, but not just through a screen, but in person Absolutely. as well. Oh, yeah. I'm with you on that, Jonathan. I'm really looking forward to getting back out and meeting people physically and, and experiencing cultures and environments. You get so much deeper connection, don't you, when you're physically present than through the screen. Yeah, Thank God yeah. for technology, though, because actually technology has allowed us to have these kinds of conversations. So yep, I'm, I'm very grateful for those. Absolutely. Um, so real quick, before we launch into the, the meat of the conversation, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share with listeners how, you, you know, why you got into um, psychology and your work as a psychologist and, and your doctoral work there, and then moving into executive leadership coaching. You know, it's a it's a great question, Jonathan. It's, it's a question I've really pondered. Is there a, is there one specific reason I went into psychology? And and perhaps not. But what I do think back to, and as a psychologist, of course, we have a tendency to do this. I look back on my childhood and thought perhaps being one of seven children and being number six in the hierarchy towards the bottom, perhaps all the individual differences I grew up in in that family and all the, you know, both the challenges and the, the opportunities that came with being having to navigate relationships, having to find your space and your voice and just the fascination with people, I think, probably came from a very young age. What I would say is when I started to get interested in psychology was in my high school years and I became quite fascinated with the power of the mind to do extraordinary things. And at the time, people like Yuri Geller, if you're familiar with him, was very much on television using, you know, allegedly the power of the mind to do bending of metals. And, and I became quite fascinated by the paranormal, by how much the mind can actually create alternate, alternate realities. And that took me then into really being curious about people who had, for example, uh, mental illness or severe psychosis and had altered states of perception, what was happening in the brain, what was happening in our mind. So I just fell in love with the idea of looking at how we use our mind both very positively, but also how people who find themselves in difficult situations, you know, what, what's happening to them and what's their journey. Very interested in individual differences and the extreme experiences some people have. Yeah, thank you for that. And I can't help but relate. I'm the sixth of eight children. Um, oh. And I did my PhD in sociology uh, for similar reasons that you described and, you know, in terms of choosing psychology, obviously micro versus macro and all of that. But, um, but yeah, I, I've always just been incredibly curious about uh, human connection and, and interactions. And, and I think that feeds really nicely into this world of leadership and how to effectively lead and manage organizations. So it seems like a natural fit to me. I, I'm a little biased though, because that's kind of my, my own uh, trajectory as well. This, there seems to be something in this, doesn't it? We maybe should do a research article on how many people who end up in this sphere or this space actually come from large families and, and perhaps have, have found themselves needing to go into this space as a way of understanding themselves. You never know, that could be quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Well, so let's, let's start with um, psychopathy. And you, you've had time as a psychologist working with, um, with individuals. Let's start by just putting out some, some definitions, uh, because, you know, we throw around these terms all the time and it, you know, it's, it, it, it's get, it gets portrayed in popular media and such. Um, but it is rather precise, you know, uh, 
medical uh, definitions and conditions. So would you mind sharing that a little bit with us and then we can go from there? You know, let's keep it simple. I'm a great believer that keeping things simple, it makes it much easier for us to, to, to make sense of just what we need to. And in that space, I would say psychopathy or the classification of psychopathy, it falls under the psychiatric um, diagnoses, if you like, or classification system. And it is considered a personality disorder, meaning that it is something that is considered to be fairly permanent, stable over time, and unlikely to, to change or shift. So that when you're working with people who are classified as psychopaths, you're really looking at not somebody that you're going to move from psychopathy to something else one day, but really learning to manage their behaviors and manage their, their, the impact that they have on themselves and the world around them. And typically we see psychopaths um, also on a continuum. You can have severe psychopathy and you can have kind of more moderate psychopathy, if that's the right way to put it. So certainly the, the behaviors and traits can be very extreme in some people and less so in others where they are classified as such. And typical characteristics are the lack of empathy. I think that's something we would all recognize in layman terms. We often talk about psychopaths not having empathy. There's a lack of interest or empathy for other people's perspective and experiences. There are often people who are described as having glib, superficial charm. That's one of the characteristics. Um, the idea that they can be very seductive at the surface, very engaging, seemingly engaged, very interested in you, but it tends to be self-serving interest. And at a point at which you are no longer useful, perhaps you'll find that that, uh, that glib superficial charm disappears. And you also can see um, a third common trait with psychopaths is the need for control, the need to both have not just influence, but actual control over their environment and the people in their world. And that glib superficial charm enables them to get very close to people, which gives them access to people's drivers and motivations and interests so that they can actually control or try to attempt to control others. So those are the characteristics, and there are many more if we go into the classification systems, but I think those are the ones we have more commonly come to acknowledge as being characteristic of people who, are, who, who fall into that category. Thank you. And, and maybe just to make the distinction here, uh, in, in layman terms, in a way that listeners can understand, what's the difference between psychopaths and sociopaths? My understanding is that it's it's actually cultural in the sense that it's psychopaths, although it was Robert Hare, Dr. Robert Hare, who um, was the, I think, the first one really to kind of classify it using his psychopathy checklist. Um, it's a terminology that we use in the UK. Uh, to describe those kinds of behaviors. And I think sociopaths, they have slightly different characteristics described in the US system, but it's a term more used in the US system. We wouldn't use sociopath in the UK. Oh, that's interesting. Well, very good. Um, so with all of that as a foundation, now I wanna talk more about leadership and, and you do a lot of work with uh, executives and CEOs, coaching and, and leadership training and, and speaking and such. Um, and you know, you don't get to that level uh, within an organization without, you know, certain kind of characteristics, attributes, and capabilities. And sometimes, not certainly not always, but uh, sometimes there can be a bit of an overlap between some of those types of characteristics that can prove successful uh, in executive leadership, uh, but also, you know, connect with or overlap with uh, psychopathy. Um, what has been your experience in that overlap? There's been a little bit of research on this, not a lot. Um, and if and when we find ourselves uh, interacting with leaders who may be along that spectrum of psychopathy, how 
can we approach that? Like, what's the best way to manage that situation and to work effectively with individuals like that? I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, Bluer Than Indigo Leadership, The Journey of Becoming a Truly Remarkable Leader. Early in my adult life, I learned about an Asian proverb that translates as bluer than indigo. If you think about the color indigo, it is a brilliant, deep, and vibrant blue. What some would call the bluest of blues. To have something that is bluer than indigo is rare and truly remarkable. Contrary to popular myth, there is no one-size-fits-all or cookie-cutter approach to effective leadership. There's no silver bullet, no secret sauce, no go-to model that will solve all of our problems. The truth is, great leaders have all had their unique strengths and flaws, and have all had to discover and then pave their own distinctive path in their life's journey to fulfill their leadership potential. Bluer Than Indigo Leadership will help you discover your own path and explore those ordinary, everyday actions that will help you respond to an uncertain future and produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations. You know, they're great questions, Jonathan. They're questions I actually get asked often by people who feel they're being led by or, or working for somebody who has some of those characteristics and so they're really asking for help so let's take the first part of your question which is you know is there an overlap and how much do i see that i would say that you know in in when i look at leadership i've, I've tried to really describe it as a continuum with two ends on the one end very entitled leaders leaders who have you know really assume that they have power and mandate and control and that should be enough for people to do as they're told by them that, that that's really their their toolkit for having impact and and influence that it's very much about command and control type leadership you know i have the title um i have the responsibility i just don't need to dress it up and i tell you how it is and i expect you to follow at the other end of that continuum, we have what i call engaged leaders who understand much more about the importance of creating understanding explaining why things need to be the way they are and bringing people with them on that journey invested in understanding other people to bring them with them so for me the psychopathy end of the spectrum is the entitled end that i described that idea that you know if i have power if i have mandate i have title i have responsibility then i can use that or misuse that in a way that is about neglecting the thoughts and interests of other people and using in intimidation tactics we see micromanagement we see coercion, we see threatening behaviors. And I have certainly seen, it's very rare, Jonathan, I will say that, but I have seen some of those behaviors in senior executives where perhaps through ignorance, perhaps through conscious intention, they're using those tactics of bullying and harassment and coercion and threat and, and that power to have the effect and the results in business that they want. Why? Because results are what are rewarded in business. Right. So when we think about why is it some of these leaders make it to the top, because a lot of organizations do reward performance based on business results, the bottom line and impact and don't necessarily measure leadership engagement. You know, how engaged is the team? Is that part of your performance assessment as a leader? Not in many corporations. I actually worked for a corporation where they rated 
your delivery as a leader, 50% your your annual performance scale was 50% your results. You know, did the project get done on time and did you, you know, create the value you should have done? And the other 50% was on your behavior related to the values of the company. Quite unusual because they were looking for actual leadership that was able to not just get the results done regardless of the chaos or, you know, the carnage that was created in getting those results but that they were done, those results were achieved in a collaborative and collegiate way, creating new leaders behind you in an engaged workforce. So for me, I have seen leaders who have used those more extreme tactics. And what you see is attrition. You see very unhappy teams. Right. You see teams mm -hmm. that don't trust each other or their leader because they're frightened. They have a fear-based culture underneath a leader who presents with those traits. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. That's been my experience as well. And it, it really does, it, it kind of boggles my mind. On the one hand, I totally get it. I, I get, you know, kind of the hard performance-based, metrics-based approach um, for executives and leaders and to be held accountable. And, and that makes sense. Um, but, but I always come back to, well, are we measuring the right things? Uh, do we have the right metrics? And, and I love that in your example, you know, there are examples of, of organizations that build that into the accountability structure and the metrics of their, uh, of their executives and, and leaders across the organization. Uh, and whenever I see that, I just get excited because I'm like, yeah, they, they get it. They, they're focusing on long-term sustainability and the cultural elements that will drive engagement, uh, creativity, innovation, will attract and retain the best people, et cetera. Uh, because you can, through command control leadership styles, which also, like you said, that, that kind of control, that power assertion that, that often you know, overlays with the psychopathy, um, those types of styles can get short-term results because you're using carrot and stick fear-based tactics. You can get people to perform because they're worried about their job. They're worried about their career. Um, but are you going to keep the best people? Of course not. Are you going to keep people engaged? Are you going to have an innovative um, company? No, because ultimately you're going to erode uh, trust. You're going to erode people's desire, uh, desires and commitment and sense of purpose in the organization. And that just leads to unsustainable types of effort. Uh, so it, it seems just incredibly short-sighted to me when organizations focus solely on the, the you know, the, the performance-based metrics without any thought to how uh, the, the manager, how the leader is interacting with the people around them, how they're actually leading and engaging uh, and supporting their team. I, I love that you've raised that because it's been perhaps one of the most burning passions I've had in doing the work that I do, which is try and get organizations to understand. And I work with executive leaders primarily because of this, because I do believe that it's the senior leadership right from the CEO, actually from the board has been my experience now, that set the culture and tone for how an organization understands its performance. And if the leaders at the top are not asking those employees, how does it feel to be led by this person if they're not listening to that feedback when they do get it? It's not just lip service to surveys and environmental you know, survey feedback, but nothing ever gets acted upon. I've certainly worked in organizations where they, they seem to have all the right processes in place. They have great leadership principles. They seem to be measuring the right things. But still, interestingly, there was an organization I worked with which had wonderful leadership development programs and principles and processes and monitoring. But the reason I was called in was because something was happening that the leaders who were making it through the food, up the food chain, if you like, were not 
aligned with those principles. So what was happening was what was getting rewarded still was results. And even though these, these leaders were being encouraged to go on the development programs, and as you and I both know, development programs are only as good as the leader who goes through them, who then decides to train and act on them. It's not enough to go through the program. So I still see a disconnect between we, we put a lot of money in emotional intelligence training and leadership development. Oh, but by the way, what really matters is whether the results are met. And if push comes to shove and you are a great leader who seems to have great feedback from people, but your results are okay, we still will take the person who's got better results with poor leadership style. It still happens and it still makes me very sad. Yeah, it makes me sad too. And I, I'm a full believer in accountability and results, right? Uh, I, that's important. It, it, it's, it's just a question of what results, what metrics, what are we focusing at on? At what cost, right? At what, at what cost? And are we taking in, into account all the opportunity costs? And are we taking into account the attrition and all of the other, you know, culture and innovation costs? Uh, associated with it? And the answer is most organizations aren't. And it, it's it's tricky, right? It's hard. And that's why they don't do it. Um, but ultimately, yeah, can we be performance-based? Can we um, focus on metrics? And can we focus on results? Sure. But let's really make sure that we're focusing on the right metrics. And if we're not focusing on people-oriented metrics and you know the, those leadership competencies and capabilities, then we're going to be shortchanging um, our, our organization. Well, I, it, I love that. Yeah. I, yeah. I would love to see more senior leaders and CEOs in particular, because they become very isolated and buffered from what's really going on in their organizations and the amount of information that they get becomes very filtered. So to what extent they're getting this feedback is, you know, a challenge for them, but I do think they need to get away from surveying. I think they need to walk the corridors more. And I think they need to have a different measure of satisfaction from employees. It's not about, you know, do you like your job and do you understand the tasks and do you like your leader? We need to get into more sophisticated ways of assessing fear and trust. Yeah, excellent. Well, it has just been a real pleasure talking with you. I note the time it has flown by. We could continue talking um, on and on and on. This has been a lot of fun, but I do want to be respectful of your time. Um, before we close, I wanted to give you a chance to share with listeners how they can get connected with you, find out more about your business, uh, and then give us a final word on the topic for today. Thank you, Jonathan. I've loved the conversation. I can't believe where the last 20 minutes has disappeared to. Uh, well, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So if anybody's interested in connecting with me personally, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty good at getting back to people if they reach out to me there. I also have a website for my company, progressingminds.com. You can also find out more about the work that I do there. So feel free to either ping me on social media or actually on the website directly. And my final message on the subject is, you know, it's important for leaders to be authentic, you know, to be able to be the kind of leader they want to be. And we're not trying to create leaders that all look and sound and feel the same. But at the same time, it is a role that is a privilege to hold. And I would love for the key message that I want people to take away when they, they think about leadership is treat it as a privilege. And in that way, you'll understand that you need to show empathy and make sure that people are with you in your role. I love that. Thank you so much. It has just been a pleasure. I encourage listeners to reach out, get connected, find out more about what you can do for them. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week.
the alchemy of truly remarkable leadership, ordinary everyday actions that produce extraordinary results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years with increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition. The average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. Check out Human Capital Innovations magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine with the mission to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We publish issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Take a look at the latest issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.